I think, before we go around killing people, we had better make death here of our evidence. Judge Kavanaugh, are you ready to begin? Oh, hell yeah. Hold on a sec. I'm going to get me um, a beer. Did you consume alcohol during your high school years? Yes, we drank beer, uh, my friends and I. PJ or Tobin or Squee. You want a beer? I liked beer. Still like beer. There was a Peter. He could paint an entire apartment in one afternoon, two coats! A riot is an ugly thing. But I think that it is just about time that we had one! Carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. Okay, let's go. <clears throat> Alright, welcome to another episode of the New Worlders Podcast. I am, of course, with my friend, Alan Wells. And Alan, what are we doing right now? We are drinking some bourbon, and we are smoking some Cavendish tobacco out of corncob pipes. It feels extremely southern. Yes, except for the Cavendish tobacco, which isn't characteristically oh. English thing, but oh okay, it's a nice mix for us, right? I thought Cavendish was American for some reason. I don't believe so. I think it's I think it's I think it's used a lot in English blends. Mm, okay, well, in any case, it feels very southern, um, and that will come up later. But first, we need to talk about Brexit because we have been planning on talking about Brexit for months and we just haven't. So. I guess the first things first, what do we both think about, well, we need to be upfront. We're not like Brexit experts. No. And I know, I know virtually nothing about the way that like. We're both still very much more informed than the average American is about Brexit. Well, yeah, but that's like saying nothing. (laughs) That's a low bar to, to beat. That's like saying we can read. Um, but uh, you, yeah, I don't understand the way like English politics in general work. You have a much better grasp on that than I do. But I, first things first, we both basically agree with the Brexit position. Yes. And so why do you, why are you pro-Brexit? Um, well, that's kind of a can of worms. Um, generally speaking, I'm I'm pro-Brexit because... I mainly because I'm a euro skeptic. I, I don't think the European Union is a feasible political entity and it was and and it mean initially it, it formed it didn't form as a political entity. It formed as an economic a cooperative economic area. Um, it was originally the EEC, I think I think that's the European Economic Zone. Um that was meant to like foster trade, and then it morphed into this thing with a political mandate. But I don't think there's there's no such thing as a European person to give a European government a political mandate. Like there's, Europe, yeah, it's too different. Like, well, and I've said this, I don't know if I've said it on this podcast, but I've definitely said it 
someplace. I actually think the same thing about America. I don't think there is such a thing as an American. Um, and that sounds crazy to a lot of people, but yeah, to say that, that a person is European to, to mean anything rational means basically uh, they are located or were born within the boundaries of a nation that's on the quote-unquote continent of Europe. Yeah. The ironic thing is is that it, it probably historically meant a lot more, especially before the Reformation, when, you know, Europe was entirely, you know, the, the, the churches of Europe were all in communion with the Bishop of Rome. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. That... That in that sense, European had a little bit more substantive weight to it than it does now. Do you think that's one of the reasons why we consider? Because to say to say Europe's a continent is a literal fiction. Mm-hmm. It's not. Yeah, it's not. It's not a, a landmass unto itself, separate from Asia. And Russia is very different from most of Asia, unless you actually take into account the fact that Russia kind of like is most of Asia. Um. Maybe. Asia is a is a cultural entity. You mean, yeah, yeah. So maybe that's what, well. I don't know. I was thinking about that recently. How strange it is that we're so comfortable with this strict division between Europe and Asia, and Russia's Russia feels far more European than it does Asian. Yeah, but even it's though, even it's not it that European. Yeah, yeah, it's not very European. So okay, so. Euroscepticism. Yeah. Um, part of it is, too, is because being a monarchist, um, I don't th- I don't think it's... It's inconsistent with the nature of the political constitution of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland for 70% of their laws to be made outside the country in Brussels. Like the yeah. fountainhead of all political authority in the UK is is in the crown, and that just doesn't work with this European project. Which is kind of strange too, because like the monarchy's not English. No, not ethnically. Yeah, you're, you're, yeah. But then again, like if you really, even if you go back into the Middle Ages, none of the European monarchies were ethnically totally identical with the people they ruled because noble like royal houses were always intermarrying with each other yeah which isn't that different from an american aristocracy either because i mean a lot of those people are living the same like neighborhoods they go to the same schools they marry even, the same families well and even and if they don't live in the same neighborhoods they run in the same social circles even if yeah. they're if they're separated by vast distances so that they there's less I think American elites have less much I mean Americans in general outside of the south don't have and maybe New England don't have strong ties to place in the sense that I think Europeans do um especially yeah. on the west coast but elites American elites have even less because the social circles they run in are less I think defined by place and more defined by social class and um yeah. Ideological affiliations. Yeah, okay. So Brex so for you Brexit has 
a lot of implications but how okay so how does something like scotland figure into brexit in uh because like from a southern perspective like a lot of southerners will just be pro-brexit because it's a form of secession or nullification or whatever you want to call it it's a form of uh checking against leviathan state centralized government Hmm. and they would say you know it's kind of hypocritical um to not be for scotland doing what scotland wants to do so like is is brexit determining the destiny of like nationalities that has no business well so i'm i'm a little i get i'm a little odd um actually i don't know if this is that odd or not but when scotland had its referendum back in what was it 2014 uh its independence referendum um i wasn't really that invested in it and i thought it would have been fine if scotland voted to to like quote unquote leave the uk uh the issue i would have is if they then decided to become a republic and cast off the 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 crown um because devolution is and for those for those who are listening who don't know is devolution is the is the trend in the second half of the 20th century whereby um the parliament in westminster has has ceded some of its um lawmaking authority to more local bodies so like wales um has gotten some a little bit more independence and then particularly with this with the uh the parliament of scotland um and then northern ireland had stormont which is there's whole things going on with that right now that it's not even functioning but devolution is this process where the united kingdom has kind of become a little bit more decentralized i'm actually generally pro devolution um because scotland and england are very different nations actually they have very different legal traditions they have very different cultures um i mean they're most united in their upper classes so um which again like is an analog to the united states in a lot of ways but on the ground level i think they're they're very different nations and so i wouldn't have a problem with scotland deciding that it wanted to totally become uninvested in the westminster system and have its own fully functioning parliament the problem is is that uh, her majesty queen elizabeth is is still the heir of the scot i mean the scottish throne ceased to exist functionally in 1707 i believe right when it became when Scotland and England and Wales became Great Britain, um, but if 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 devolution were to happen where Scotland became fully independent, I would think that the most natural thing to do would be that the Scottish Crown would just—I mean, the, the Scottish Crown didn't cease to exist; it merged into the crown into the Crown of England and like, and they became the Crown of Great Britain. But if devolution happened, I would think that you know you'd have a separate parliament like you basically have the situation you had when James the 1st became king of England he was already the king of Scotland upon the death of Elizabeth he became the king of England also but the the crowns were technically separate it just they there was a personal union in the person of the monarch so i would think that that would be the most natural move if Scotland left um and there there'd be all sort if they wanted i mean if Scotland decided to not go that direction and cast off the crown and become a republic there'd be a ton of more a ton of extra legal work to do besides simply making their parliament fully independent of Westminster okay so hmm. i guess the re- so i'm pro brexit 
I didn't really care like when I first heard about it. Um, but I'm pro, and I th I think I th I think Americans in general have been kind of pro Brexit. Mm. People on the left are definitely are. Well, yeah, but I and that's just, I don't even understand. I, I don't think that they even know why they're not pro Brexit. Yeah. Um, I I mean a left a, a friend of mine who's on the left literally said to me the other day that uh, Boris Johnson was dumber than Donald Trump, which is just which is literacy. totally ignorant. Yeah, I, I told him I said that's <laughs> that's not true at all. I said. Boris Johnson is a lot smarter than Donald Trump is. Yeah, Boris Johnson knows who he is. Um, yeah, he plays he plays a sort of Trumpian character a little bit, but he clearly knows what's what's going on. Um, the guy's written books. Man, I don't think Are you sure they're they're not. Well, I, I mean, he was a journalist for a long time. Oh yeah, that's a good point. I don't so see why he'd have to. Have you'd have to be a successful ghost, writer to be a journalist. Write them. I mean, I guess you can say. I, I, I'm assuming Trump had a ghostwriter for Art of the Deal, but to call that a book is like, <laughs> I mean, Churchill actually has written several, I think, several books, and one of them was a really good biography of Winston Churchill. Um, oh, you mean Johnson's written several books, including yes, 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 yeah, Johnson. Like, yes, Churchill did write a lot of yeah, books, no, but he wrote voluminous histories Churchill, of England. Churchill wrote like so much, um, but. Uh, yeah, well, and that's the thing. I've all, I've thought for a long time Boris Johnson basically wanted to be Winston Churchill. I think most people think that that's kind of what's going on with him. Um, they, I mean, he was a journalist too. That's yeah, how Churchill yeah, yeah. basically yeah. made his made his uh, livelihood for a long time. Um, I don't think Johnson was ever a soldier, though. I, I might be wrong about that, but I don't I don't think he was. Um, so there, I, I feel like. Well, there's almost the sense in which, like, American leftists, like, are they even really American? And that sounds so, you know, it sounds so divisive. But there's, you know, that, well, we don't need to focus very much time on that. But there's this American impulse to, you know, revolution and stick it to the man and all that stuff. And when I first kind of heard about it, I was like, yeah, I mean, this seems like something conservatives should probably be on board with. Um, I'm not a fan of Europe, like in general, culturally, um, in any way. And I think that the aisles have always been strange. Like they've always been their own thing. And that's not to say yeah. that Europe is monolithic, but they're definitely like England is its own even within Great Britain, the English are their own thing, the Scottish are their own thing. The Isles are just, they're different. And um, yeah, it, and it, now I'm so pro-Southern that it's it just seems natural to want to be pro-decentralization and secession and anything that, you know, stinks of nullification. Yeah. Um, I, I think, I honestly think the age of the centralized nation state, I think we've already reached the zenith of the centralized nation state and and all we're going to see now is a downward trend well I, I think i think honestly it's like it's i think it's over like you're seeing all the i mean you're seeing stuff in catalonia you're seeing i mean but that was basically just quashed militarily wasn't it for now i don't think yeah, those feelings are going away and that's the creepy thing that's the really creepy thing about all that stuff is it's like 
So since the Civil War, I texted you this the other day. Since the Civil War, there the South is always viewed as like this failed political thing. Um, you know, they they lost the war and they were subjected to the North, whatever. Um, and since the Civil War, there have been something like four hundred wars since the Civil War, and something like a quarter of them have been secession related. Interesting. And there really weren't any before the South. So before the South, there's this consistent move, and it really, I think, starts with the French. Centralizing direction. Yeah, the yeah. centralizing direction. If you want to go really ancient, I mean, like, power has always, like, accrued more power. I was bringing this up with a friend of mine recently who I think is a neocon. And, you know, he, he was like, well, you know, Genghis Khan united, like, most of the world. And I'm like, Genghis Khan is your example? Like... Yeah, the Mongol Empire in, in so many ways was so atypical. And it didn't last very long as a unified empire. It didn't really last longer than Genghis Khan. Well, there was no infrastructure at all in place. He just yeah. conquered a bunch of people and then kind of moved on. So, But the Roman Empire was around for a really long time. Yeah. The Byzantine Empire was around. I mean, there are forms of it, but I. the funny thing about those things were like highly stable and lasted a lot longer. The EU... It's hard to even claim that the EU is a federation. Yeah. Like, it's barely anything. Yeah. And it's amazing to me that it is so difficult for for them to leave. Yeah. Something that's not even like, what is it? Like, it's not, I don't even know what it is. Like, when Roger Scruton talks about it, it sounds really similar to something like, almost like the Paris Accords. And over time... Uh, I think it's I, I don't know I think it's a little more than that in well, that well over time over time yeah. it's like developed like headquarters and rules and all yeah. this stuff well it also it, it basically when me, as far as I understand it I'm I again not an ex I'm more versed than the average American but I'm not an expert in the internal workings of the EU but uh, a vast majority of member states of the EU's law is actually written in Brussels. Right. I, I mean, mostly it's dealing with things like, you know, things affecting trade in various ways and, and agriculture and, like, economic exchange and things like that. But, I mean, those are things that touch almost every area of society. Um, mm. And so, and the, and the other thing that surprised me about the EU when I started reading about, like, the EU Commission, which is basically the executive body of the European Union, it's really undemocratic. Yeah. That's what's so ironic about about people of the left being so pro-EU is that it's it's really not democratic in a, in a robust sense. It's internationalist. It it uh, yeah. I, I just find it odd. Well, the left defends still defends Castro. The left will still, and this has become way more unpopular than it used to be. But I still see this from leftists. They will still defend Stalin. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, it's, you know, yeah. I, the left claims to be dead. The left gives lip service to democracy and they worship dictators. Yeah. So, I don't know. It's hard to take any of that stuff seriously. It just, it really seems like it's just people were told Brexit is racist. Yeah. And it's the same thing with Trump. Yeah. You're told it's racist, so you believe and, it. Yeah. 
and and the ironic thing about that is like no i mean before trump started running for president nobody ever even i think uh, is a bit, from what i remember even in the 2012 like did he run in 2008 too in the primary or was it just 2012 that he ran the first time i don't remember anyway the fir- you know the first time he ran in the primary and didn't get very far i don't remember anybody ever using the racist like epitaph for him it was really when he started doing well in the 2016 election that this, these allegations of racism started coming about I mean, he has big... He has, well, and some of his doing well actually had to do with him saying things that are kind of racist. Well, you, I mean, are you talking about surrounding immigration and, like... Yeah. yeah there's a, fair enough, but... I mean, I don't think they, like, just plucked it out of it. Here's the, He would have been called a racist no matter what. Everyone who runs for the Republican Party is called a racist. Yeah. But, like, they... He gave them, like, stuff to... He's been called a racist by people on the right. Yeah. So. It's just interesting because if you look at his track record going back before his entry into politics, there's never any indication that he yeah. is a race. I mean, he had he, the NAACP gave him an award at some point in the 90s. Uh, he's, he's, got, he's got pictures of him and Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson. And, I mean. Well, but, I mean, that is the thing. It's this soon as you become associated with the right you're a racist yeah that's yeah i mean maybe he wasn't called that in 2012 i don't know but um that seems to be the thing it's yeah you're republican you're hitler I and mean, it's amazing because it happens every time bush was called hitler mm-hmm. literally and then you know now people John McCain I'm sure was called a Nazi at some point and oh in the 2008 election oh yeah and now he's well maybe even before that I mean he's a Vietnam War vet yeah people on the left will say almost anyone is a Nazi for almost no reason it's really strange but the the Brexit thing I it's it still seems like because everyone sort of groups these things together and what's going on in France and, you know, just populism all over the West. And I I mean, yeah, I guess Brexit's populist, although it is kind of hard to think of. I don't know, does Boris Johnson really give off like that much of a populist vibe? Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't follow British politics closely enough to know how, how populist his appeal is. Um, but I, I, I definitely so. I will say this: I, maybe Boris Johnson has a populist appeal, but the Brexit, the pro-Brexit campaign in general, isn't that univocal. Like, look at J, look at a, um, at Jacob Rees-Mogg. That guy's like the anti-populist. He's like a super elitist. He's like, yeah, I mean, he's a, he's he's basically like a, a nobleman from like they call him the the joke is he's the honorable member from the 18th century. <laughs> like he's so elitist. Um yeah. I love him. I think he's awesome. Um devout Catholic has a shitload of kids. Um but and he's a but he's a head he's a hedge fund manager. That's literally yeah. like how he made his money. Um and he's pro Brexit. And so I don't think it's as I don't think it's as clean as people maybe think it is. But in English, so in English thinking though, you just said that's how he made his money. 
If that's how he made well, he his started. Money. He his his father was wealthy too, I believe. I don't okay. think he. I don't think he was raised middle class. I think he comes from money, and he he had seed money. In that sense, he's c- kind of like Donald Trump. Yeah. Um. Hmm. But he's not. But but in his personal habits, he's not like he's not like Donald Trump all that much. I don't think. He doesn't eat steak with ketchup. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. I think he. I think he thinks probably. Like I think he probably thinks rules is fast food. Like I think that's kind of like. He probably thinks what rules is fast food. So rules is this restaurant in London that's like. Pretty. It's a pretty nice restaurant. Oh okay. Um, it's actually it's it's very good. I've eaten there before, but uh, he. he I mean, he probably thinks it's like McDonald's to him. I don't know. But. And McDonald's it was a McDonald's to Trump. <laughs> um. Well, he eats with a fork and knife. And, yeah. And does he really? He doesn't eat with his hands. Oh, that's right. What a weirdo. How do you yeah, eat, a, he's, how he's do you a, eat a French fry with a fork? I don't know. I, the, my favorite picture of that, like, one of my favorite pictures of Trump is he's got fried chicken on his plate, and he's literally got a fork and knife in his hand, and I think he's on Air Force One. That just defeats the point that of it's like, fried I, Yeah, chain. I can't imagine. I'm surprised that he didn't lose a shitload of Southern support when they like a disrespectful way to eat chicken yeah yeah southerners would like be like what the hell it's kind of like when uh <laughs> what was it during the uh during the 2008 campaign or whatever they told obama he went somewhere in ohio or something like that and he was ordering a burger in some restaurant and they some aide told him like well don't ask for ketchup here because they don't do that here oh and he's like that's ridiculous i'm gonna ask for ketchup <laughs> he i think he asked for it anyway or something like that but not having ketchup on a burger is a little strange. A lot of places. I mean, McDonald's burgers have ketchup on them. Yeah. No, I... Oh, I, not I having mean, ketchup. Yeah, not oh, having ketchup. Oh, it's... That's sort of a California thing. Like, the thousand... Like, the California-style burger. Yeah, or, like I mean, Island White Castles don't have ketchup on them normally. Do it's they have just, anything on them? I don't them think they have anything onions? other than onions. Well, um, in any case, I guess I'm pro-Brexit just because it's offensive on some level. Like, it's one of those things where it's, like, a bunch of people... Uh, I, I hear from the New York Times every day something about it being, you know, problematic or populist or something. And it's just, like, I don't care what you people think anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, the other thing, the other thing that's weird about Brexit, too, is that, that it doesn't... It doesn't... That I think sometimes Americans have trouble understanding is uh, pro- and anti-Brexit sentiment um doesn't neatly fall into along party lines in the uk yeah so you you have labor that was pro-brexit and you have labor that was anti-brexit i mean the the leadership of the later labor party i think is officially anti-brexit i think uh corbyn and and the leadership are are essentially are essentially like europhiles but you did i mean during haven't they actually got slammed by places like jacobin for that like, I don't know. I, I think Jacobin's actually been writing. They they think I think certain. This is what's so ironic about all of this to me, is the American impulse against internal secession, internal nullification. We're all Americans, and then Boris Johnson received an award from AEI last year for mm-hmm. like. Uh, being a champion of like dem democracy, I don't remember. It's this award they give out every single year, and some pretty big like deals have won it. Like I think Reagan won it at one point. Um, oh, interesting. 
But in any case, when he, when they gave it to him, I was trying to think of why they would do this, and I actually wrote a piece and submitted it to some places, and then rescinded it because I realized I didn't know enough about Boris Johnson. But my initial take was, I think they're giving it to Johnson because they know they can't give this award to Trump. Huh. And he res- he represents such a similar kind of populism. AEI is like, you know, a bastion of like neocon, you know, the kind of cons- American conservatism that we hate. And um, yeah, <laughs> that was just the only thing I could think of for weeks trying to write this. It's got to be because they can't. AEI doesn't really like Trump. And so they're like, well, we can give it to him. And it's just, it's really strange to me because like Brian McClanahan was talking about this on his podcast too. I guess the Abbeville Institute just did this. Um, I don't know if you even talked about the Abbeville Institute on this podcast before, but I don't, I don't think we have actually. Um, yeah, this summer I had such a massive Southern revolution. Um, <laughs> yeah, I post like or all this. Unrevolution? Yeah. D, 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 evolution. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, someone someone had, had written a piece for Abbeville this last week about um, secession hypocrisy in U.S. foreign policy or something like that. And, like, Hong Kong. Like, Hong Kong's another example of stuff where, like, most Americans, like, even Bernie Sanders was, you know, coming out and, like, Oh yeah, we got to support Hong Kong and or at least, if very least, saying like state violence is like a bad thing here. I guarantee you, if anyone asked Bernie Sanders about secession, he'd be like, "Yeah, the well, the South, the South should have been punished. Like you should have given the money to the blacks, um, you know, or whatever weird stuff he says." Yeah, and I think I think Bernie Sanders was, would essentially be Thaddeus Stevens in that yeah kind of context, right? Yeah, so, yeah, the South is bad, and, like, you know, they just, there's no nuance at all. And if it's happening anywhere else, it's, you know, potentially, there's, like, this initial American impulse towards rebellion. And it's funny because we, we worship it in the Revolution, and then in the Confederacy we won't. And obviously it's because it's a very easy straw man to make against the confederacy because they were fighting for slavery Mm. um but so was the founders in a lot of ways (coughs) which is a very woke thing to say like kaepernick and the betsy ross flag thing that happened yeah yeah which is funny because betsy ross herself was an abolitionist an abolitionist yeah but you know none of the founders were um yeah but i honestly don't think i don't think kaepernick's like analysis was that nuanced i think he just this is analysis ever nuanced. yeah yeah i just think he's like well the merit you know we had slaves at the founding and the betsy <coughs> ross flag is the is the founding flag so er- ergo the betsy ross flag is racist and it represents a, slavery which is just like it's amazing because the neocon argument for that is always something it's always very apologetic towards the founders and they won't even mention stuff about how King George actually tried to essentially turn the revolution into, I don't even like calling it a revolution, but whatever. Let's call it King George's War. Um, <laughs> the he, he tried to turn the war in the same way Lincoln did by making emancipation proclamations for slaves in the oh, colonies. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. 
Yeah, this is something only Southerners talk about because the northern the Northerners want to put all of the slavery stuff onto the South and keep the founding completely pristine. In fact, they mm. rewrote histories of the revolution after the Civil War. So the, the story that we're always told, and this is so telling, the story we're always told, and I believed this my whole life, was that the revolution was only possible because of the French. Because yeah, that's a very standard. Yeah, narrative. Lafayette was there, and Cornwallis yeah. was cornered. Well, but the French just showed up at the end of the conflict. Like Cornwallis being cornered wasn't achieved by the French, right? It was definitely enabled right at the end. Well, and, yeah, but I mean, like we had fought. Like the war wasn't going badly right up until that very until Yorktown. Like it wasn't like well, I mean, it, it the wasn't war go- didn't go very well, especially on the the east coast through most of the war for Washington. Yeah, but I thought by the time that, like, leading up to Yorktown, we were doing better even before the French arrived. Well, and see, part of the thing, too, there is most people forget England is fighting the French all around the world at the same time. Yeah. So the argument is that no matter what, it's essentially... Like, I used to joke... I think I even joked on this podcast... Maybe this is a joke I just tell in private. I tell a lot of anti-French jokes. <laughs> um, that you know, as a as a as a nineteen percent Frenchman, I I I give you permission to make <laughs> anti-French jokes. Thank you. I'm never doing that genetic testing because when Are you my afraid? French levels come out, it's just going to be. You think it's going to be through the roof? It's going. There's definitely some there because I know Francis Xavier Matthew, who apparently was an illegal alien who cast the deciding vote as legend goes cast the deciding vote to turn Oregon from a territory into a state is like I don't know how she's related to my mom but he's like my uncle like fifth uncle or something like that oh wow yeah he was he came down like my 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 mom's maiden name Matthew yeah that's a French spelled name. French yeah it's not yeah. the by it's not the Jew Matthew it's <laughs> It's the frog. Well, Matthew. let's be let's be clear. The Jew Matthew is not the Jew Matthew. It's the English way of spelling Matthew. How dare you say? Yeah, something so racist in my home. No, it's just, just Jesus was true. English, of course. So then but, it is. But the Matthew, Jew Matthew was Matthew was a Jew. <laughs> Jesus was a good English Jew. Um, it's like that scene in uh, like, it's seen in a Knight's Tale. That's exactly what I'm referencing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The Pope might be Catholic, but Jesus is English. And an English man will not win this tournament because English legs are shaky on French soil. <laughs> the Pope himself is French. Oh, the Pope may be French, but Jesus is English. Um, anyway, so, yeah, I'm never getting genetic tested. I don't want to know how, how much filth is in my blood. Because um, there's going to be filth. Some. <laughs> there's there's going to be some. <laughs> See, that's not racist, though, saying filth, because you're talking about white people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Mostly. <laughs> Actually, I'd be really happy if I found, like, all this, like, so-called, like, unclean racial blood in there. It's the yeah. French is what would bother yeah, me. Yeah, exactly. Um, you find out you're, like, West African or something. <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, that's great. That's pretty awesome. I just don't want any of those that frog blood. Um and, okay, so anyway, so the, right, the I want to hold on. I want to get some more bourbon, and we need to. We're attached to these mics, so let me. Okay. Um. So the point, the point I was trying to make 
about the French about the French involvement in the revolution is that the reason that Cornwallis couldn't be reinforced is because of the Southern campaign. And the Southern campaign is never discussed ever. It's never discussed. And it, it used to be until after the Civil War. So there's actual history books that were amended after the Civil War and they reduce chapters on the Southern campaign. Interesting. Yeah. So literally you have the Southern military tradition makes it impossible for Cornwallis to be reinforced. And the French, yeah, they help. But the Southern campaign was way more successful. And then you even consider the fact that Washington himself is a Southerner. Like, it's just, it's, it's very, all the mythology about the war. Well, and wasn't, wasn't Robert E. Lee's grandfather... Or father or grand... I think... Was it father? Father or grandfather was a pretty high-ranking military official during the Revolutionary War. Yeah, I think so, too. He would, I would imagine he was involved in the Southern Campaign in some way. Probably, yeah. Um, in any case, um, I don't remember what the, the whole point of that was. But it, it has something... Well, I, Brexit. It's just like... Well, you're trying to make the point... You were trying to make the point... Uh, yeah. Yeah, so it's just it's it seems very it seems like a very American thing. And it, it it's just it's just strange to me how Americans just in general are very it seem very uncomfortable with talk of secession. And most of the problems we have which is so ironic given the way we fetishize the Declaration of Independence. Because think of the opening, right? The whole point is saying, like, when, you know, when when in the course of human events, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, like, the whole thing is justifying that there are some cases where secession is, like, obviously not to be taken undertaken lightly, but, but is actually, necessary. Yeah, it's a duty. It's a duty. Yeah, not even yeah. just necessary. It's a duty. It's a duty of citizens against tyranny. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's the way the South viewed it in the Confederacy. They viewed it as a duty. And I think on some level, Scruton thinks Brexit is a duty too, because there, see, you could make, I think you can make a lot of like more, this is part of the problem with all these discussions. Moral arguments get lumped in with legal arguments. And the weird thing is, I don't understand how there's a whole philosophical debate to be had over like whether or not Brexit is even a good thing. Legally, I have a really hard time seeing how England has any... How is England bound to the EU? Like, what is what exactly binds them? Yeah. What is it? Like, I don't get it. it, it they're not a federation. Yeah. What are they? What is it? What is this union? Yeah. I don't understand. That's the thing. I, is it, the only way, way that I see that you can really approach it is that it's, it's like a voluntary, like a voluntary association of yeah. like member states, which is interesting because, you know, that is, that's kind of Lockean yeah. in a lot of ways. But I mean... Wait, how is it locking? 
Well, just lock in if you, if you think of like if the member states are like viewed as like individuals in a state of nature who like kind of contract among themselves to form some sort of government, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. But what's funny is Locke didn't think Locke didn't think that uh legislatures could, could transfer their power. So Locke would actually not as far, based on my reading of the two treatises of government, I don't think Locke would be okay with the European Union because he would he didn't think he explicitly says actually in the two treatises that a legislative body cannot transfer its legislative powers to another body okay. even by unanimous consent of that legislative body which is interesting because that also means Locke probably would have a huge problem with administrative law as the way the way it's practiced in the United States because administrative the way administrative law works is Congress says okay we have this area it needs to be regulated, like food safety or whatever. Oh, right. We're going to create this governmental body that can create administrative law, yeah. and we just give it to them. And Locke, I think, would have a huge problem with that. Well, because, yeah, those things basically function. Don't those thing? don't administrative bodies all have their own courts? They do. Which they do. is a total farce. Yeah. Because they literally, this is one of the best things about, I'm not as... They're basically like the way the church was in the Middle Ages, where the church had its own courts, and separate from the civil right. courts. So, r- right. Well, and so, like, Char- I'm not as big a fan of Charles Murray as I used to be, but he's actually really, his book, By the People, I think is really helpful in explaining the Northern conservative tradition, as opposed to the Southern, because... The Southern tradition always wants to call itself Jeffersonian, and the Northern tradition usually, this is, I think, a sign of the honesty of the South versus what I think is a lot of dishonesty in Northern conservatism. Northern conservatism doesn't, like, want a label, but Murray uh, openly calls himself a Madisonian at the beginning of the book. Oh, interesting. And... He we'll talk more about this later when we talk about Amari in French, but Madison was a southerner. Yes, but he was a nationalist. He wasn't a federalist. See, that's the ironic thing about the Federalist Papers. The Federalist Papers were written by a royalist and a nationalist. And the I've heard anti- this before that Hamilton was a royalist. Yeah. Where does that come from though? He it, it comes from his uh his uh high view of um English political life. Well, I know that, but a high view of English political life doesn't necessarily equal royalism. Do you mean where do they get it? I think they get it from the Federalist Papers. Which fe- which paper? I don't know. I'm not an expert at all in the Federalist oh, Papers. Okay, interesting. But the Federalist Papers are not Federalist. The Anti-Federalist Papers are Federalist. I need to read the Anti-Federalist Papers. I actually have a copy of it. Yeah, like um, cause people you, have said that actually the Anti-Federalist Papers are more important to read than the Federalist Papers in a lot of ways. They were more indicative of the of the thought of the time. the 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 Federalist Papers virtually had no impact on the ratification of the Constitution. No one ever tells you that. Just based on the discussion that was going on, yeah, at the they they convention? basically influenced no one. The point, well, they weren't supposed to influence the constitutional convention. They, they were supposed no, to no, no. They were New supposed York. to influence. Yes, and they didn't do that either. Really? Apparently, there was almost nothing that happened because of the Federalist Papers. I don't even know. So when, when did they become viewed as being so important for I don't the cause of, know. of 
gratification. You, you talk about like Ben Shapiro style conservatism. The Federalist Papers are the Bible for American conservatives. Yeah, which is really odd because American conservatives also make a big deal about the Bill of Rights, and the Federalists didn't want a Bill of Rights. I mean, the Federalist pa- the, the authors of the Federalist Papers didn't think a Bill of Rights was necessary. They didn't. No. That they was, thought that, that was they, one of the things they were against. Yeah, that that, that was a concession so that the anti-federal some anti-federalists would come over and support ratification. See, they didn't think the Bill of Rights would be necessary if you set up the federal government the way they were calling for. Okay, that's interesting. Well, because there's there's actually some anti-federalists that didn't want a Bill of Rights either because. They, I know that the Bill of Rights wound up because it's not really a Bill of Rights; it's amendments to the Constitution. But um, they didn't want any rights in the Constitution because they thought it would limit it. But no, because they thought they would imply that the Constitution granted rights. Oh, that makes sense. And that's exactly what happens after the Civil War. Yeah, the Fourteenth Amendment becomes the incorporating amendment, and basically turns all Americans into American citizens instead of yeah. citizens of the states. Incorporation, honestly, is, I, I think is it was not a good development with regards to the relationship between the federal government and the state governments. It's been a total disaster. What's the point of the state governments having state constitutions? There is no based point. On, yeah, there is no point if, if incorporation is a thing. There's no point. It's literally just this is like, I don't think we've talked about the Tocquevillian fallacy, but this is part of the Tocquevillian fallacy where you have these mediating institutions between the federal government and like the citizens and in the southern and in the anti-federalist view all forms of government were co-equal with the other institutions of society there wasn't something that mediated between them they were co-equal so you had government and you had business and you had the church and you had the family, and whatever. And all of those things were co-equal. Government was basically there sort of in a way, it's very libertarian to say this, but, well, in some ways it's not libertarian, but kind of the purpose of government was, like, the ugly stuff, like the monopoly on violence, stuff like that, like giving the state a monopoly on violence, and that was about it. Like, no ability to regulate business, no ability to regulate faith. Um, Interesting. Have you read Abraham Kuyper? No. I mean, I, I know a little bit. Of, he was also kind of a horrible racist. Was he? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. I mean, in the same, kind of in the same way that Calhoun was. Like, he believed that the blacks in South Africa actually weren't, like, capable um, of whatever like society yet or whatever oh interesting so well the reason that's the only thing left to ever bring up about him anymore oh interesting well the reason i bring up kuiper is um you know he's a reformed theologian who was also the prime minister of the netherlands but he had that he had the concept of like sphere sovereignty where his view was like there's the each of the institutions in society government the family like the church the university actually had spheres of like influence yeah that in which they were actually sovereign oh, okay. so he talks about like the church and like the university and the family as being sovereign in their spheres so that kind of okay. maps onto what you're talking about with the way that like the southern tradition like approached 
yeah. relationship to the quote unquote the, in the Tocquevillian phrase the mediating institutions and the government. Yeah, but the mediating the mediating language is problematic because it implies that they're somehow under the government between the government and the people. Yeah, and that's I mean. This is, yeah, it's just, it's all so complicated because people think in the most just bizarre terms on everything. So you say something like, I don't think women should have the right to vote. And what do most people, what do most people hear? They hear something. Women aren't people. Yeah, women aren't people. It's pure misogyny. It's just, that's all it could possibly be. Yep. Well, what if you think that um, marriage shouldn't be politicized? What if you think that women shouldn't be politicized? Yeah. Well, maybe women shouldn't have the right to vote. And it's like you can twist that into really creepy ways if you want. You can be like, oh, he's saying that women are better than men uh, and they need to be kept like above, you know, the political fray. I actually kind of think that's true. In some... <laughs> I mean... I'm, I. I I don't think they're better than men. No, I don't mean I, it, I, I don't mean they, in an absolute sense. I just mean that like it, it, to me it's it's almost like it, it, I'm, not say, I'm not is, saying we should, I'm not saying at this point like I'm let me be clear. I'm not advocating we take away the vote from women at this point. Well, there's but, no way to even do that. Yeah, there's no even way to do that. But um Grammy River. What uh, what what I mean is is that it's the same to me. It's this. It's an an analog to it. Going back to British politics, an analog to it is how the queen is a non political person in society, and how how much importance is attached to that in the British Constitution. The queen right, is not right, supposed right, right, to right. express a political opinion because she's a sacred person in a certain sense. Yeah, and I think that could be a helpful analog for understanding a position that views the the granting of women the right to vote as problematic not because of misogyny which yeah. i'm sure there were plenty of men at the time that didn't want to give women the right to vote because of for misogynistic reasons i bet you they were all leftists maybe they would have to be because if your if your reasons are misogynistic it's going to be something like this they're not qualified to vote mentally right mm-hmm. so they're not going to use their voting rights well the only person who's going to care about that is a leftist. Well, maybe not the only person. I was going to say, I'm like, I'm not sure that's true. But, but like, in in a sort of a... Le- so it's like political... Eh, maybe this doesn't make any sense. It made sense to me two seconds ago. But, well, in any case... Like, I, I, what I, what right, I was trying to do was just support your point that saying that, like... That, that it doesn't necessarily... It's not necessarily misogynist... It, being skeptical about women enter, entering the political world is not necessarily misogynistic because there there is there is an approach that that you know women are not not necessarily above men like you said but just that there's there's a kind of sacredness or a separateness to women that ought to be somewhat separated from the political fray yeah well okay politics is a dirty business yeah there's no way around that. So politics is also a form of warfare. That's yeah. literally why we call them campaigns. Yeah. Same with business, actually. Kind of. Yeah. So, like, most societies have forbade women from being involved in combat. 
And the reason is because it is beneath women to be involved in combat. They shouldn't be required to. That's a barbaric society. Yeah. Um, I don't think Israel's that barbaric. But, you know, the fact that Israel requires all their women to serve in the military, that's not a sign of a culture that's flourishing. That's a sign yeah. of a culture that's literally... Embattled. Yeah, embattled. So, and surrounded. Like, if... <laughs> There's a lot of ways you can make a case for something like that and it not be misogynistic. Um, yeah. This but actually, that's all people hear. This actually, and I mean, this is a little off topic, but this touches on uh, theological issues I have with... Did I ever send you that article by James Jordan, Liturgical Man, Liturgical Women? Uh, I don't think so. i got to send that to you. That's actually a really good read. But um, James Jordan's a heretic. What would you say that? Have you ever read me, James Jordan? No, because he's a heretic. Oh, my God. I don't read heretics. Um, <clears throat> Unless they've been dead for like a thousand years. <laughs> then you read them? Yeah, sure. Uh, one of the points that... So, James... The the the, thr- the main thrust of the article and like... J- James Jordan's addressing basically the, the women's ordination issue, right? Okay. But he approaches it from a different angle than the both the egalitarians and the complementarians usually approach the issue. So what he says is, is he goes, look, um, he said, if you, if you take the biblical narrative of creation seriously, which he does, and all Christians should, men and women were created for liturgical roles yeah. in, in creation. And our biology actually matches the liturgical roles, not vice versa. Mm-hmm. So the, the liturgical role is primary. And then so then he goes on to say, okay, well, what's the liturgical role then? And what he goes on to say, and it's a great article, um, and I'm, ba- I'm really summarizing it badly. Um, but the upshot of what he says is, is he goes, in the liturgical assembly, men represent Christ. Yes. The, the, the leader of the liturgical assembly represents Christ. Women literally represent eschatological man. That's what women are. Women are... So they're, they're created second, right, in the order of creation. This sounds super Gnostic. It's not Gnostic, really. But um, they're created second. They represent eschatological man. Um, and so... And, th- and this actually explains a lot of what St. Paul says. So I never understood... So you know in the in 1 Corinthians when Paul's talking about women covering their heads in church, blah, blah, blah... In the middle of that passage, I think it's 1 Corinthians 7, if I remember correctly. In the middle of that passage, he says a really, uh, he says a line that I never understood until I, re- and I read Jordan and it all of a sudden made sense. He says, for, for man is the glory of God, mm-hmm. but woman is the glory of man. Mm-hmm. I never understood how that fit into his argument until I read Jordan. And, and, and the, the, the point is, is that when you say women are the glory of man, what what he means is, is that women signify the glorification of man in the eschaton. That's why that that's actually why Paul says they should be veiled, because that that mystery hasn't been fully revealed yet. Because you veil things that are not fully disclosed. That's like, I mean, that's what that's what it that's what revelation is. Revelation's an unveiling of something. So. The upshot of the up, the upshot of his article, and I'm relating this back to what you're saying about um, women being above, like warfare, right? I think that 
I think that we have that intuition because we realize that women in the in the order of creation represent our telos, our telos. They're not they don't represent man as he exists now. They represent man as he will exist in the consummation of the kingdom. Does that make sense? Uh kind of it just sounds like a bunch of nonsense. I it just it's, maybe I I think you should read the article, but it, it's I I I I buy into all the liturgical stuff, the eschatological stuff. To me, it sounds super weird because that sounds exactly like the kind of uh, what, what what does that mean? What does that mean that they're they're man in the eschaton? Oh, the the point is is like so if you look if you look at that uh, maybe I didn't explain that that well, but if you look at the if you look at the imagery used in like eschatological literature, and particularly in the book of Revelation, like Christ is the bride, the church is the bridegroom. So the church yeah. as a unit is a female. Yeah. So the church is a woman. Yeah. So w- women are actually a type of what all of humanity will be in the consummation of the kingdom. Christ is the bridegroom. Yeah. The church is the bride. Uh, I don't think it's a big leap to make. Yeah, I just don't... Un- mm, I get the typological aspect. Applying it into, like, contemporary sexual politics seems fraught with problems. No, I'm not saying it's not fraught with problems. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just trying to say that maybe our intuition that, like, what you were saying is that women are above politics and war and things like that is fundamentally because this is actually built into our teleology as human beings created in the image of God. Maybe. Because women actually signify the the telos of humanity. Like, they're what we're supposed to be, not what we are now. That's why men go to war. War is not war is not something that will happen in the kingdom of God. War is something that happens now in this fallen world. That's why we I think that's why we recoil so much at the idea of women in warfare. I th- I mean I think the reason we recoil is because the the only moral reason to go to war is defense of like something. And maybe there's some Yeah, but defense of something, but women are great at defending things. I mean, th- yeah, think of not, a woman with her but children not physically. Uh, not against soldiers. I mean, maybe. But I mean, women are weaker than men. Like no, physically, to, yeah, but I mean, protected. But physically, I mean, women have also like lifted cars off their children when they're trapped under them. Uh, you sound like a transgender wokeist. No, I don't. I don't argue the fact that you, women you, are. You believe that all those women punching spies in movies and stuff are actually <laughs> punching them? I think. Hey, I love me some Black Widow. That's all I gotta say. Yeah, well, there's. I mean, if Black Widow tried to attack me, she'd break her fists. You think so, dude? I could probably beat up like Ronda Rousey in a straight-up fight. <laughs> it's just bone density alone is a problem. Like, yeah, maybe. Like in 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 actual like UFC rules, she would beat me because she's more conditioned and, you know. Grappling, but, it, but you grappling mean if like that was grapp- an actual fight? If she was in this room and she was trying to kill my wife, I'd kill her. Like, no, no, Kanta, <laughs> she'd be dead. 
Um, <clears throat> yeah, just bone dense. I mean, I'm like, I'm like a 200 and I outweigh her by like, bro, I'm like probably twice her weight. I don't know where she weighs in right now. In any case, I don't know. Maybe you're right, but I, something about that. I didn't that. mean to drill it off into theology, but I was saying that I think, I think there, there's a, um, teleological underpinning to our in- intuition that it's inappropriate for women to be involved in things like combat. It's interesting. I just I get so creeped out whenever you tell me James Jordan stuff. Like <laughs> it's always it's always so something about it's just so like it feels so like renaissancey. Renaissance. Like it's just so it's kind of the opposite of renaissance. It's so like artistic. Sense. Something about it's just it feels a little gay. Like that's honestly that's the way I feel. Like you, so you, you, who is gay? <laughs> I still need to. I show should you probably that. insert that clip right there. Um, yeah, when you and Randall tell me this James Jordan stuff, I'm like, this all just feels so gay. Like something about this is just so like, I don't know. Anyway, uh, you need to read the article. I'm sure it was paradigm I mean, shifting for me actually. I. That's nice. I'm just saying. I don't know um, what if that gives it any weight in your opinion, but I it's I don't I don't usually say that about it's, articles. It smacks of stuff like uh, like what is it? Gregory of Nyssa is the one that thinks that there won't be sexes in the eschaton. I think that's Nyssa, yeah. Like it, that kind of stuff. Just I don't know. That's just weird. But there is something that I I've I've stayed away from James Jordan because every time I have a conversation with you and Randall about him, I'm just like this this is creepy. Like something about <laughs> this is just weird. Um, so I don't know, but it's something to think about, I guess. Anyway, where let's let's try to pick up backward where I, I unnecessarily I think de- derailed it, but I don't know. We're both. I was trying to support you, you ass. Yeah, I was trying to say like, yes, I agree with you that it, there's something fundamental. Well, okay, and so I, this is actually why I think the president should actually be forced to renounce political party. Okay. Because the president actually is supposed to function, to the chagrin of even a lot of Southerners, the president is supposed to function the way a king is actually supposed to function within the the federal system. Because his main job is is literally just to uphold the constitution it's yeah. not legislative it's with mostly, the veto power if yeah. necessary which is Basically in the, in the uk which is literally in the uk system is the only power the monarch actually has left is to withhold assent which is essentially a veto which is pretty damn powerful no that is like it's amazing how people think that's like nothing like they can say no like, yeah just no and it can't become law i mean most and they're right most people say that if that actually took place there would be a political crisis because the they don't UK. they don't view the monarchy as actually part of the political process anymore, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's a Which problem. Which is funny because everything is done in the name of the crown. Prosecutions are crown versus whatever. Like, yeah. if I was arrested for a crime in the UK, it would be crown versus Alan Wells. Like, I mean, it's that's just the way everything is issued in the name of the crown. Everything. Yeah. But it's just they, you know, it's weird how how um like leveling this the democratic idea is on like political constitutions it's really unfortunate well and it's because it gives i really think it's because it gives bad actors more power oh yeah like it's you have to position yourself in such a specific way to be able to influence a king 
or a queen. Yeah. That's incredibly hard to do. And most people now just assume that anyone in a position to influence a king or a queen is already a bad actor. But yeah. it, maybe, I don't know, power is corrupting, so I'm not going to just trust those people like willy-nilly. But yeah. like, as soon as you give all of this stuff to everyone in society, you basically give power to whoever can influence the the people in society. Yeah, so you give power to the demagogues. Whoever's and, the most successful demagogue has the power. Which literally it's that's the fourth estate. Yeah. There's no more powerful demagogue than the fourth estate. Yeah. Literally. I mean, it's one of the reasons why every time you talk to a leftist, they start with Fox News. They will never get over the creation of Fox News in the 90s. They think that was the beginning of the end of America. So weird. Because it, it create it created a I think most of what Fox News does is just stupid. Oh, I like, think so too. I don't I, I don't ever watch Fox News. It's not it's not a Well, you love Tucker Carlson. Okay. Okay. Yes. Are you drunk? I do. You're starting to sound a little drunk. I might be. Okay. I love me some Tucker. I do like Tucker Carlson. I don't watch him that often, actually, to be perfectly honest. I only really watch him when his YouTube clips go viral. Yeah, exactly. That's when I watch him. But I I sympathize with him a lot. But I I mean, in general, I don't don't watch network news, period. No, neither do I. I read... I I get all my news online and from various publications, but including leftist ones. I mean, I I read the Los Angeles Times. I read the New York Times. I read Washington Post. I... I read kind of a little bit of everything, but yeah, I don't really even read that much news anymore. But in any case, the point is that Fox News created a legitimate like alternative voice in mainstream news media and it really pissed a lot of people off and it still does. And even though I disagree with like the vast majority of opinion that gets put forward on Fox, I just I remember watching um who who was the guy that got fired during Me Too? Uh, Wait, fired from what? From Fox. Oh, Bill O'Reilly. Yeah, the Bill O'Reilly factor growing up, and we watched it all the time in my house. And oh God, my my parents weren't like they're not they're, they're smart people. They weren't like everything Bill said. They were like, yeah. Um, but uh, so it's oh, that didn't bother. We're gonna me. do it live. Yeah. Oh God, that guy. Just do it live. Um, talk about a narcissist. Uh, I never liked. I never liked him. Well, and the thing that always pissed me off about his show is he literally was like Rachel Maddow before Rachel Maddow. Yeah, it's the that's no actually yeah spin zone. It's just the facts. Yeah, there was no more bias, yeah. no more spin to time on network television than Bill O'Reilly. Yeah, that's funny. That actually is a really interesting point. Like Rachel Maddow and Bill O'Reilly are kind of two sides of the same coin. Well, and my Bernie bro friend that's on the other podcast occasionally. You, oh, I forgot about your Bernie bro friend. He can't stand Rachel Maddow because she peddles. Just she's a total shill for the DNC. Yeah, I mean she'll just say whatever they want her to say. Like, she's a joke. She's not a reporter. Yeah. She really is. She's just like O'Reilly. And it's just amazing to me that Fox News is the one that always gets lampooned as being at the heart of all this. And it's like, well, they benefited, I think, because they met a real need in the market that the rest of the networks just had never met. Almost all of the network anchors were liberals. And this country even though it's not like very good 
at being traditionally conservative still wants to be. The vast majority of people in this country want to be conservative. They just don't know how. Yeah. And, you know, Fox News comes along and it's super freaking popular. Clearly, there was a market niche that needed to be met there. In any case, it is weird that these dots don't get connected. Like James Burnham's book, The Machiavellians, just completely opened my eyes to the farce that democracy is. That book is so good. Oh, yeah. Like, it's it's, it's hard. called The Machiavellians? Yeah, and it's about these, these Machiavellian... Um, it's like four different Machiavellian political theorists uh, that begin in like the late 1800s. And I think uh, at least one of them is like contemporary with Burnham at some point. But to be a Machiavellian doesn't mean like we say it and it's like it sounds like they're, you know, spies or something yeah. like that. No, they're not spies. They're just political theorists. And the reason they're Machiavellians is because they're they're, according to Burnham, their thought is entirely scientific. Yeah. And by scientific, he doesn't mean scientism or even utilitarian. He literally means, I think what he means, he means anti-ideological. So they theorize only based upon fact and what can be known about the political process. So these are like the data wonks. Well, that's like, the way like they would Nate be. Nate Silver types. That's the way they would be today, except oh. that people like Nate Silver don't do political uh, theory; they do political projection. analysis or projection uh-huh. or whatever. No, they they just took the history of politics and stripped it of all the rhetoric, and were like, "This is actually what happens." So, someone says democracy, and this is what actually happens. What actually happens is completely undemocratic. Most people don't vote. Yeah. And what winds up happening is a simple majority just rules everyone else. Yep. That's not democratic at all. Nothing mm-hmm. about that's democratic. Democracy is a farce. Hmm. And that's how they do political theory. And if you take a more traditional view of conservatism, a Roger Scruton view, Scruton's always maintained, and most like real conservatives maintain, conservatism is inherently anti-ideological. It has to be based in real things. Yeah. Um, it's particular, right? Yes. Particularist, yeah. The particular over the universal, the yeah. local versus the universal, what you actually see versus what could be. Which is, one, one. I think, one of the main reasons that when, and I've experienced this myself, when somebody asks you, what is conservatism? You can't really It's an really hard to answer. You're yeah. like, you know, like, I'll, I'll, yeah, it's just hard to answer what it is in general, like, yeah. If somebody asks me, it's easier to say if somebody asks me, what does it mean to be a conservative to you personally? That's easier to answer because I could say, well, I'm a monarchist, I'm an Anglican, I'm, you know, XYZ. I can, I can name off commitments that I have. But I wouldn't, like, but those commitments, I wouldn't think, like, it's not ideological. So it's not like I think somebody who's not Anglican can't be conservative. Like, it's, it's, I, part of my conservatism is my, is my theological persuasion, but it's not it's not of the kind of nature where somebody who doesn't share my theological conviction can't also be a conservative. Well, and that's sort of a thing I'm running into because I'm trying to write this book. And I, I'll come up with these like amazing ideas and then I try to put them down and I just it doesn't work as like a chapter in a book. 
explaining it's so hard to explain concepts to people that don't um but it's easy for two nerds to talk to each other it's really hard like like i was playing a video game at work i brought a playstation to to work to reward the kids on fridays or whatever and uh, the teacher i work with he comes in and it's after hours and i'm playing a game and he's like oh what game is that and I, I try to explain it to him, and I'm like, oh, it's a Metroidvania game. No one knows what that means unless you know what Metroidvania means. And so I'm trying to explain it to him. I'm like, oh, crap. How do I even explain this? Yeah, I don't even know what you're talking about. Yeah, most people don't. It's a very, for gamers, it's like a, it's, it's not like super, super deep in the gamer whatever. But in any case, um, I don't. Oh, no. Has my mic been... Hold up. Has my mic been... Testing. 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 Oh, my audio might not be great. Oh, well. Uh-oh. Um, You're always louder on these things than I am anyway. Um, <laughs> That's I, true of my life. I, I Well, it's weird because I think it's literally just your uh, your tone. Oh, the register you're, of my you're, voice. Yeah, you you have a lower register than I do. Um, yeah. In any case, shut up. Um, no, I actually, I actually, interesting that you say that. I actually think my the lowness of my register is artificial. Really? I think I, I think it's a learn. I don't think. I don't think my register is, is. I think it's lower than it should be. Be, I mean, this is. I mean, I don't know why anybody listening would be interested in this, but. Based on how I, when I do sing, how I sing, I think I actually artificially lower my voice for whatever reason, mm. and I actually think my voice should be at a higher pitch than it actually, my speaking voice should be at a higher pitch than it actually is. Mm. Um, that's a, anyway. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, oh, I, w- I was going to bring up a point about what you said about, like, demagoguery um, and, like, pl- dem- democracy being a farce. That's one of the. I mean, I'm just going to kind of put in a a uh, plug here for monarchism or monarchy. <laughs> um, one of the one of because I actually just today I had somebody ask me like because I had, I had said in a in a certain context I, w- I was a monarchist and he's like I don't think I've ever met a monarchist before and I'm, he's like why are you a monarchist? Um, and, and you I, said because you hate women. Yeah, that's exactly what I said. <laughs> um, even though my favorite monarch is a woman, <laughs> so. One of the one of the positives that I think there is to monarchy relates to what you said about democracy being a farce. Um, if you think about if you think about people who in in the in the context of representative democracy, when you think about the kind of people who run for office, they're obviously like highly driven, type A, ambitious people, right? Mm-hmm. One of the one of the benefits of monarchy, even if it's a totally passive monarchy, <clears throat> like the monarchy in the UK. I mean, e- even though that in theory they can they can withhold assent and they have that that particularly strong reserve power i mean for all intents and purposes it's it's not a it's a totally passive monarchy right but the very existence of the monarch i think checks the ambition of politicians because they yeah. in they intuitively realize no matter how high they climb on the political ladder there is always somebody formally above them yeah. Right, they will never ever be the monarch. Yeah, and I think 
in people who don't naturally cultivate humility, that can be a very humbling experience. Yeah. Because if you think about it in the context of UK politics, the prime minister has to have weekly audiences with the monarch. Yeah. And there's a strict protocol. When they go to Buckingham Palace, they are they are shown in by a footman when the monarch is ready. Yeah. They could they could be waiting outside in the antechamber for a certain amount of time. They're shown in by a footman. They have to grab the monarch's hand and bow. Mm-hmm. It's that in and of itself, I think, is something to recommend monarchy. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's my plug for monarchy. Yeah, no, that's interesting because it really see in the th- I think that's that's really telling of how much damage and violence the Enlightenment did because it made if if you come into the world believing that there is some kind of natural order and that things have a place um where they they will actually be best so i think most people actually get that intuitively i don't want to be president i don't want to be a politician i don't even want to run a company like i'm yeah, not yeah i wouldn't be good at those things i don't want a lot of money yeah like, i kind of just want what i most need. most of us want to be hobbits yeah it's kind of true it like, really is we really just want to be hobbits we want to like have our like five meals a day yeah have some good beer maybe st- talk to a wizard every once in a while and have some good parties and yeah well and seeing that is i i think that well okay so that i think is actually a, a dangerous thing too because i think it's part of the appeal contemporary appeal of socialism oh yeah no sure yeah because there's there's like this but it, it, the, the strange thing that's, is that's interesting it, actually you could think of well, you like, could think of the Shire being co- communist in a certain sense. Well, and there's, it, not in, not there's in the, communitarianism. Yeah, that's what I mean. There's I, should, I should say communitarian. And uh, the hobbits don't have a king. Yeah, yeah. They're just a community. Yeah, and um, nobody. But it, I, I guess my point I'm saying is, if you think about, if you think about the Shire in the context of like Tolkien's mythology, um, I am. I could say absolutely certain that I mean obviously you're talking about fictional characters here but I could be absolutely certain that to say to assert that I thought that was history. Yeah, but we 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 got to keep that on the down low. <laughs> um no hobbit ever starved. Yeah. If a hobbit doesn't have if a hobbit had a bad you, you can be absolutely certain based on the way that Tolkien presents the Shire and Hobbit community that if some hobbit had a bad crop he would just be eating at his neighbor's house yeah. until he could raise better crops. You know, it's yeah. No, and that is actually the problem with capitalism is it makes people too non-dependent upon each other. That's that's one of the main. Yeah, oh, that's a good point. That's one of the main conservative critiques of capitalism. Scruton it fosters is, individualism, yes, in, in an unhealthy way. Absolutely, yeah. Scruton has said. Yeah, I mean, people will always point to example, you know, like you escape an abusive family or whatever. The, the, these things, in some sense, these things actually prove the rule because the people who capitalism benefits as individuals, it, it seems like something else in society deeply failed them. And they had to resort to, 
you know, rugged individualism or whatever to yeah. escape from a bad situation. And like Scruton has, has never been apologetic as far as I can tell on this point. The conservative is a reluctant capitalist. But if your choice is between capitalism and socialism, it's not much of a choice at all. Yeah. It's like, well, of course. Like, yeah. and I think there's a... In that sense, a conservative is a pragmatist. Yeah, sure. I mean, y- y- you can't stretch that too far, but at the same time, well, I mean, if it, 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 pragmatic in the sense of, okay, what's going to conserve what we care about the best? I actually Between don't... Between capitalism and socialism, that's an easy answer. I actually don't have that big a problem with pragmatism anymore because... I've had this philosopher, um, Mark Boone, who's a, I don't know what his primary area of scholarship is, but he like, he wrote a book on Augustine and um, I've had him on my podcast a couple times and he, what, what institution is he associated with? He teaches actually in China. Oh, he went to Baylor. Baylor was where he did his oh. grad work. But, um, I th- think I think his dissertation was on Augustine, but he's done comparative work in Augustine and William James. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's really interesting talking to me. I about actually, it. uh, it's interesting that you bring this up because I actually was much more anti-pragmatist until last semester when I took I took a nineteenth-century philosophy class, and we actually covered William James at the very end of the class and when I actually read some pragmatism I was like this is actually not as bad as I <laughs> thought yeah, it was yeah and that's like we were talking earlier um, uh, we were we were good Anglicans tonight and um, went to a service and then actually uh, ate what I would consider to be a real Eucharistic meal after the service by eating actual food with real humans. Um, well, to be fair, the service we that we went to didn't claim to be no, it, it didn't. But I just, in any case, we <laughs> we 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 fellowshipped uh, for several hours around food and stuff. And um, one thing that came up was this uh, this idea about. Um, Oh man, this is happening to me so much now. I totally lost my train of thought. So we're talking about pragmatism. Well, you're talking about that philosopher that does a comparison, comparative analysis between William James and Augustine, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's the whole the whole worldview thing. So like, the Christian tradition I was raised in is deeply anti-liturgical. And would never stop talking about the importance of a Christian worldview. And yeah. that that's this really, the, in some ways, this is the unfortunate legacy of Francis Schaeffer. Um, not all of Schaeffer's legacy is negative. In fact, I think like his actual legacy, like the his eschatological legacy is probably the salvation of like thousands of souls yeah. and like everything. I think, he, a, I think a major part of his legacy is negative and that legacy is named Frankie Schaeffer. That's pretty bad, yeah. <laughs> Frankie, <laughs> Frankie's kind of a disaster. Yeah. But, like, his political legacy in America is also pretty bad. Like, because he, in some ways, he kind of, like, we, we need to get into this Amari versus French yeah. thing at some point. But Have you read a Christian manifesto? I don't think so. I read it years ago, but I need to go back and read it now that I've, I have a, a more well-developed conservative thought and see what I think of it. But it's basically, 
it's kind of a political manifesto about how Christians right. are supposed to be. And I read it when I was a young young man. I mean, I think we've all seen the implications of it, and it's you know the rise of the religious right and. Yeah, I I think well, and, and and honestly, abortion absolute actual abortion ab- abolitionism. Yeah, see, that's exactly what I was going to say. Is I think, and I think Schaefer would not have liked this, but I think in some ways he he's probably responsible for kind of an, a reawakening of like uh, I don't know, like neo puritanism or something like that. Um, Interesting, because he basically called the church to like reclaim the government. That was sort of like his program after like how should we then live, and in any case, the the point is that this this moment that especially the twentieth century in general, like Richard Weaver, who's one of the Southern agrarians, actually gets lambasted a lot by Southern conservatives because of his book Ideas of Consequences, because he basically tries to make the case. I'm not that far into the book, but my understanding is that he basically tries to blame uh, every bad thing on nominalism. Like who is this again? Quite Richard? Richard Weaver. He wrote okay. the book "Ideas Have Consequences." Oh, I've heard of the book before. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. a really famous book, but almost no one reads it anymore. And he wrote. He thinks some, nominalism like. A cor- I haven't that has some the interesting book. parallels with some of our orthodox friends. Well, and he's not entirely incorrect, but um, to just take this is this is a sign of ideological thinking is to think, and this is my biggest problem with Ben Shapiro and the neocons in general is that they think bad ideas just need to be replaced by good ideas, and that's a sign of ideological thinking. Yeah. It can't just be ideas. It's not idea. Yeah, no, bad ideas need to be replaced by by good forms of life. I mean, they also need to be replaced by good ideas. No, but ideas like, aren't sufficient. Ideas yeah, exactly. aren't sufficient of themselves. You have to have this is good. I think this gets to your point about uh, you know coming from a non liturgical background. Yeah, and this is like you see this in like in recent publications of like uh, Hans Boersma. And James K. Smith, they're yeah. really emphasizing the importance of liturgy in the formation of a Christian consciousness. Yeah, um, the idea isn't just worldview because worldview just deals with ideas. Mm. The point is, you need to have a Christian form of life. Yeah, in order to really tackle the um, the challenge of modernity and postmodernity. Yeah. Yeah, because modernity is fundamentally a liturgical and technological phenomenon. It's not; it, it's ideological and it involved ideas, but like it's, it's really not idea. It is and it isn't. Yeah, I mean, okay. So what the reason I say it's not ideological is if you read the guys like if you read like I'm reading Derrida right now. Derrida is not really. I don't think he fits the tradition. The traditional definition of an ideologue. Well, what do you okay? So, what do you think that means? Because I have a, like a pretty specific idea now about what an ideology is. So okay, well, you tell say, me what your definition of an okay, ideology so is. Okay, so one of the for in Suicide of the West, Burnham Burnham says that um, the the one of the main markers of an ideology is self consistency and 
something like um this isn't exactly the way he said it but something like an answer to every question before it has been asked in that sense derrida is definitely not an ideologue okay why just because he's deconstructing stuff no be, no because it, it, derrida like it, this is one of the things that makes derrida infuriating um he yeah deconstructions like the method but if you ask him like if you, I mean, he did. He did an interview at the end of his life, I think, in two thousand four, with um, another French thinker, Rudinesco, who was a basically a Freudian. Um, and she's trying to pin him down on various like issue, like basically leftist kind of causes, you know, regarding like feminism and transgender things and stuff like that. And Derrida actually shows a, a quite a bit of reticence on being pinned down on things. Like he'll say things like. Well, I'm for because you know his big idea is le, le difference, right? Like differentiation, or I mean, he coined that term difference because the way he spells it is not the way it's actually spelled in French. Um, but he like his project is he thinks um, he takes binaries and he wants to like complicate them, but not because he thinks the binaries are are bad. Like at one point in the interview, he says, "I don't talk about things I don't I don't like admire." Okay. Um, and so what he's doing is he'll take these binaries, like male, female, whatever he's deconstructing, and he wants to complicate them because he thinks there's something there in the binary that's worth preserving. But he thinks the only way to preserve it is to kill it so that it can be basically resurrected. Hmm. So he's actually a kind of conservative in a really weird roundabout sense well that's the thing i've actually never but he's never consistent so he'll say like he'll Mm. say things like i'm a feminist like insofar as feminism is trying to like you know defeat the patriarchy but if feminism comes around to like excluding feminism becomes the patriarchy yeah he would that's not good yeah exactly yeah I mean, Michelle or Foucault... Fem- or kinda... feminism becomes... Like, his famous example is that feminism becomes exclusionary of transgendered issues. He says, oh. I, I'm leaving. So he would be... He, he, ha- he would have a huge problem with... Ter- he would have a huge problem with TERFs. You know, trans-exclusionary radical feminists. Well, the truth is, the feminist movement was always based in that. Well... The feminist movement was never transgender. No, it wasn't, but Derrida would say, like, so Derrida's, like, whole point is that um, the value in, in the feminist movement was in in kind of complicating a binary and, like, affirming alternate, affirming difference, right? Like, affirming this differentiation that happens. So he said once the feminist movement comes stifling of another form of that, he's he's checking out. See, that... But that's... Is, that... You can say whatever you want about that. I don't think it's actually conservative, in with the sense we mean it but it's not ideological it, it could be though because here's the thing if you take what you just said if everything is focused around the difference then you do kind of have an answer to your question before it's been asked you can sure. you, you okay. can kind of Fair stream enough. it out now this is actually the main I've never had that big a problem with postmodernism i've i've had a huge problem with postmodern christianity because what do you mean by postmodern christianity i mean like, like know, radical orthodoxy Brian McLaren and oh, oh like you mean like emergent stuff yeah basically like people who <laughs> have decided that 
I think the Southern tradition is actually a form of postmodern Christianity because it's anti-modern in the first place. Oh, interesting. So, well, the reason I ask the question is because there's actually there's different Christian reactions that take postmodernism sure, sure. seriously. What I mean, what I mean, I think Tim Keller actually takes postmodernism pretty damn seriously. Uh, yeah, that's fair. And I that's that's exactly what I'm talking about. Like Michel Foucault, you know. Similar things happen to to him towards the end of his life, where he's he's trying to be co-opted for certain political purposes, and he's like, "Look, I've said my whole life, meta narratives are power plays, and what you guys yeah. are trying to do is engage in a power play." Yeah, that's what this is going to all end up in. In the end, it's going to wind up in violence and ideological thinking, and so, yeah, I'm not trying to claim that you're wrong i'm just saying that almost any almost anything can become an ideology because i think ideology is fundamentally oh i agree i agree with you on that i just don't think like yeah derrida think, is probably resi- is, is trying to resist it yeah I and think. i don't i yeah like i don't think foucault was an ideologue i don't think derrida was an ideologue and i think postmodernism it actually has a lot of engine uh a, a lot of well, not engine, a lot of dynamism potentially four forms of conservatism because of this because yeah. it actually represents the collapse of modernity hmm. and that's like carrie roberts in yeah, one and of if his, anything's progressive it's modernity yeah absolutely yeah. yeah absolutely i don't think progressivism ever existed really until the enlightenment that's why i think the conservative i i, I don't think conservatism one of the reasons it's hard to define is because it's it's really kind of just being normal Conservatism is just sort of being normal. Being human. Yeah, and progressivism is actually literally a form of transhumanism. Because if you're a Christian, especially, a fundamental part of being human is admitting you're not God, and that there is a God, and that there is an order and a plan for all this stuff. That's largely concealed from you. Yeah, that you and, and you wouldn't want to know anyway. I mean, what, how does it benefit you to know about God's, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, certain things, sure. Like, hey, in the end, guys, it's all going to be good. But until then, you're going to rape and kill each other, and you're going to need a lot of forgiveness, and I'm going to have to kill my son so that I don't have to kill you. You know, like, stuff like that. It's important to know that stuff. Yeah. That's the good news. But, like, in one of those federalism talks that Kerry Roberts gives... Um, like almost every talk he gives us on federalism Um, he it's super negative and he goes after Russell Kirk like like a mofo for like the whole thing he goes after who? Russell Kirk like oh yeah because and when his critiques of Kirk are super interesting because Gottfried makes these same critiques of Kirk and Gottfried personally knew Kirk so he actually respected him and they were like friends and stuff but like on my podcast with him i'm like okay so this is what i take your criticism to be kirk wasn't actually grounded in a genuine tradition and he's like yeah that's true that's kirk's problem because he oh, tried to he tried to make the case that conservatism was fundamentally a transatlantic english american thing yeah anglo-american yeah yeah he uses that term that's like not older that's not real you know yeah it's that's interesting like I don't know if I, I don't know if I don't, I don't know if I agree with that critique of Kirk, but Kirk definitely uh, 
exalts like the idea of an Anglo-American tradition to the point where I think at some yeah. point in Kirk, at some point in conservative mind, Kirk says something along the lines of the American conservative tradition wouldn't exist if England ceased to exist. If England ceased to exist. Yeah, and that's just absurd. But huh. But yeah, I can. I, can I don't know what that. I think about that. On it, to be perfectly honest, I just thought the idea was interesting. Well, I okay. If it's dependent upon a culture that's literally across an ocean, then it's probably not that real anyway. That sounds like a fiction. As a conservative, that to me that sounds like a fiction. Like Michael Oakeshott and Roger Scruton, their whole deal is Oakophilia. It's love of home. Oh, it's not. Yeah. It's not this like. One of the problems. So would you with say Kirk, in that? Would you, would you say in that sense that that the, that the objection to to Kirk is that he's almost kind of smuggling ideolo- ideology in under the radar, even I, though he wouldn't want to. I th- I don't think that Robert. So so the libertarians always go after Kirk because his canons of conservatism are too broad, and libertarians are looking for an ideology but um and so on some level i don't think that that totally works but yeah you can pretty easily map most of his canons of conservatism onto classical liberalism they're not that hard uh, to map on some of maybe but like the one that the one that pops to my mind is the the uh Taking so one of his canons, I forget how he phrases it, but basically the the upshot of the canon is taking a conservative takes joy in the variegated like expressions of human existence. That I don't think is something classical liberalism does because classical classical liberalism is leveling. It wants like kind of uniformity in a lot of ways. I guess it depends on what you mean by classical liberalism because if you if you mean the I mean million. I, when I think classical liberalism, I honest, I immediately go to Mill. Yeah, well, and there's a huge debate as to how even libertarian Mill was. So, I mean, yeah, I when I when I use the term classical liberalism, I mean something similar to libertarianism, but really, in a lot of ways, closer to federalism. Okay. Because I just I like yeah, if you're talking about Mill. That's a pretty specific thing. But I think it, it definitely comes before him. Hmm. Like, the tradition must precede him. It's got to go at least back to Locke. Yeah. So I'm, That's true. That's really, when I think of classical liberalism, I think of Locke. And so I, whatever the American project is, it's, it's, in some le- it's in some way classically liberal. But... More importantly, they. Yeah, no, I mean that is a good point because. I don't know. I don't. I don't care that much about the libertarian argument because I think ultimately. Oh, I don't either. I I think ultimately their problem is that Kirk isn't, uh, isn't presenting an ideology. Yeah. And well, also I mean I I think libertarianism's based on a false anthropology anyway, so. Catholic libertarians, I don't think are really. Well, a lot of their anthropology is actually with Catholic libertarianism. So. A lot of their anthropology is actually based on like the Old Testament, quite literally, because there's there's no state. 
That's actually like their main deal, and like Robert Nozick. Well, so do they? Do they? I do respect Nozick a lot, not in his political philosophy, but in some of his other philosophy. I don't think you would disagree with his political philosophy that much. Like, in what way do you disagree with his political philosophy? Well, I mean, I haven't I haven't read a whole lot of it, but I I don't trend to liber- was Nozick a Catholic? I don't know, but oh. he's I don't tend he's a minimal he's a minimal state libertarian. I think the the thing the way the the area where I would object, object to somebody like Nozick is I think that the state not ought to but just has a paternalistic role and I think if the state ignores that it leads to bad things. So that's one of the reasons I used to be very pro legalization of all drugs. I think you know, like somebody, I used to think whatever drug somebody wanted to ingest, it shouldn't be the state's business. Um, I don't think that anymore, because I think it, to me, to me, it seems like at least in the American context, when people people make moral people make people like conclude moral things from what's legal and what's not. Yes, absolutely. And yeah. so that in of itself. I think means that the state has a paternalistic role because it means that what is legislated I, against. I think most libertarians will actually grant you that point. Oh, really? Yeah, they just think it's inappropriate that that happens. That it has a paternalistic role, but it does. Like it, it to me, yeah, to me it it's really does. anti-conservative to say, well, it shouldn't have that role. So let's just like legislate that all drugs are, for example, in the, in the case of drugs, let's legislate all drugs as being legal to. See, and that's that's my that to problem. Me, it means that individual autonomy is actually uh, favored over the good of society as a whole. Well, that's where I depart from libertarian. And I think a Catholic libertarian would say that the good of natural consequences is oh, is really interesting. That's why their view of anarchy is not that problematic. Their view of anarchy looks a lot like a conservative society. Most yeah. of the problems we have are I mean, with Tolkien the, called himself a monarchist, a monarchist and, anarchist. And anarchist yeah. yeah, yeah, and so I most it's the, it's the it's the libertines, it's the leftist libertarians okay. that we really have the problem with. But so it's almost like Catholic libertarians like want us to like allow a space for natural law to like take sort its of. vengeance. Yeah, kind of. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because, you know, if... if the, see, part of my problem is the way that a lot of these things are worded. So it's like, we need to legalize all stuff. I don't think we need to legalize anything. The problem comes with criminalization of certain things. Interesting. So should, like, you know, prostitution be made illegal? I mean, Aquinas didn't think so, and neither did Augustine. Oh, they didn't think it should be made illegal. No. Like, uh, I think Aquinas actually thought society would explode. If it was made illegal. Yeah. Like he literally, or, or one of them, maybe it was Augustine. I think oh, that's Augustine, fascinating I, to me. I didn't know that. I think, yeah, this is a point that libertarian, like Catholic libertarians like Tom Woods um, make all the time. I need to listen time. to his podcast. You'd, you'd really like it. I, honestly, it's, in, it, it's honestly in, it's in my, it's in my podcast like app, but I just have never <laughs> yeah, dude, actually he, listened to it. He did an episode on, on uh, clean energy recently that was super interesting because he had it. He had a guy on there talking about how thorium, if we converted all the nuclear power plants to run on thorium, it would uh, basically decrease, it would basically eliminate any of the concerns that 
the like because Dan. Oh, I think I've seen this. Are these are the thorium reactors the ones that are like have a completely passive meltdown system? Maybe I'm I read sure. an article recently about I didn't they, really they, they, understand they, it. Yeah, I, the article I read, I didn't fully understand it either. But apparently, they've they've designed a nuclear power plant that if there's a meltdown, the containment system is entirely passive. Like no human action is actually required for it to be safely contained. Oh, well, that'd be nice. Yeah, and and, and what's interesting is, is like the and the nuclear power plant itself would become the storage site indefinitely. Oh. So you wouldn't have to like move the nuclear waste. It could just stay there and it wouldn't it wouldn't eventually burn out of the reactor into the groundwater. It wouldn't like oh. do anything like that. Well, and it's interesting like yeah, cuz Dan Crenshaw when he was on uh Joe Rogan. Oh, I haven't seen that recently. Yet. It was pretty it was pretty good. It's way better than the Bernie episode. Oh, the, Bernie was on? Yeah, Bernie, Bernie was on there for an hour. Did you read that article that I think, I, I don't remember if it was the American Conservative or another publication that um, they post an article called, like, Why Joe Rogan is the Most Trusted Man in America? No, I haven't read that. Yeah, it was, I didn't read it either, but it was just like... There were, he shouldn't be. He thinks Medicare for All is a good idea. Oh, does he? <laughs> I think, I think, I think that, to me, that like the impression I got was the upshot is, is and, and this is something that I've noticed just in my conversations with people, People on the right and the left love Joe Rogan, and I think that's because he's. I like him, but it's kind of like at an arm. I like a lot of things about him a lot, but I'm not totally. Yeah, but I think I think the point the point I think that it that the reason people like him is a very conservative one. He's not an ideologue. That's absolutely true. Yeah, he just and he does and he like he allows free reign of all, any ideas because he interviews yeah, everybody and he just. True. He doesn't have an agenda when you interview somebody. He just wants it to be out there, right? I think he has more of an agenda than he lets on. He's extremely pro marijuana. Oh, like well, yeah, I, not, there's, a, there's not the joke like, "Hey, hey, that's cool, man. Have you ever tried DMT? Like, have you seen that like <laughs> meme format? It's any, like anytime somebody says something like kind of offbeat or whatever, like they they post like." Because I guess that's like a thing on Joe Rogan. He'll like he's asked several people if they've ever tried DMT. Anyway. Yeah, he always whenever it comes up, that's the first thing. Dan actually admitted that he had tried pot. That's not that. Yeah, I know, scandalous. but this was one of the this was one of the best he was, things. He's a veteran, dude. Hold on, dude. This is one of the best things ever. So he he asked him. He's like, yes, and I didn't I didn't like it. And he's like, well, what did you do? Like how much? And he goes, what? I, there's something wrong with the mics in here. And he's like, "What are you talking about?" He's like, "Sorry, what was the question?" <laughs> and he he tries to bait him into talking about his pot usage like four times, and each time's Dan like, "I'm sorry, Joe, I just I can't hear what you're saying." <laughs> <laughs> and that's I oh love my gosh. I love that kind of stuff for people like him and Ben Sass because it's so blatantly political. Because he's like, the political repercussions for what I say right now could be astronomical right but not really no 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 but you know that's why that's why he's like i'm sorry i can't hear you because whatever he says is probably going to be misconstrued somewhere in some way from the left or the right but they're but they're being so the thing that's so funny about is they're being so honest about it yeah, they're being so honest. This is purely political. I don't want to deal with the fallout Maybe. from answering this. question. Honestly, I think the best response to that question is like, and I, I, I'm almost loath to say this, but I forget which talk show Barack Obama was was on when he was running for president, and somebody asked him like, 
have you ever tried marijuana? And he goes, he just kind of said, well, yeah. He goes, I went to college. <laughs> and then, and then whoever, I think it was, I think it was Jay Leno actually said, did you inhale? Obviously referencing Clinton who said yeah. famously, you know, I tried it, but I didn't inhale or whatever. And, right. and Obama's, which is, so stupid. which is stupid, but it, and the, the, Obama's response was perfect. Obama just looked at Jay Leno. I think it was Jay Leno and said, isn't that the point? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's like, because it just reveals how disingenuous it was for Clinton to go, oh, I didn't inhale. Dude, okay. Someone someone needs, and maybe that someone should be me, needs to take that dialogue and, like, turn it into a Kavanaugh hearing thing where it's like, did you ever rape anybody? And he's like, well, I went to college. Oh. Isn't that the point? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That would be hilarious. Yeah, the normalization of, oh, I went to an Ivy League school. Oh, my Isn't that the point? Isn't that what what white pieces of crap do in college? Rape rape women? Um, Oh, my God. Well, yeah, it is interesting. nobody listens to this damn podcast. Thank you, all 15 of you, um, who are probably all in, like, China trying to figure out how to invade America. Um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> By the way, I'm pouring myself more bourbon. This is probably my fifth bourbon at this point, so um, excuse me if we don't stay on topic. We actually probably need to finish up soon, but um, we haven't even really gotten to the Amari thing. Yeah, we haven't touched on it at all. Well, the Rogan... We started this with Brexit, and we didn't even really talk about Boris Johnson's political moves yeah, recently. Yeah, because with... I don't think either of us totally understand. Explain, okay, okay. Ex- explain your understanding of... What's going on? Okay, my my understanding is very cursory, but what happened was, is, so, the, originally the Brexit deadline was in March, right, of this last year, right, when they initiated, sure. when Theresa May initiated, I forget which article it's under from the tree that formed the European Union, she initiated that process, and then it, there was a hard date in March, the UK political establishment couldn't get its act together with regards to coming up with a Brexit deal that was acceptable to the to the government. So that, I think it was March 31st, if I remember correctly, they negotiated an extension of the deadline with the EU. To, I believe it's October 31st. Obviously, subsequent to that, Theresa May has resigned as Prime Minister. Boris yeah. Johnson has become Prime Minister. Recently, in the last couple of weeks, what he did was he asked the Queen to prorogue Parliament in the middle of October so that Parliament would come back into section into session right before the Brexit deadline. And the way most people are interpreting this, I don't know if this is actually Johnson's angle, but this is the way it's being interpreted by like the Times and the time the London Times. Um, the actual Times. And probably the New York Times. Yeah, yeah. But um, when I say the Times, just for future reference on this podcast, the Times is actually the British newspaper because it's just called the Times. Um, the way it's being interpreted by them is that Johnson's trying to avoid opposition for a no-deal Brexit, right? So that's the big thing that a lot of the... A hard Brexit. A that's hard Brexit. Yeah, well, it. it's not even that because technically... 
a, a, a Brexit deal could still be a hard Brexit, but like a no deal Brexit is like doomsday to a lot of the anti-Brexiters, right? They're saying, oh my gosh, this is going to cause a super economic downturn. Right. Well, yeah, everyone's calling it a hard Brexit, I think, because it's basically a form of secession. Sure. They're just going to leave. Yeah. Yeah. And the, 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 the big issue is, uh, as far as I understand it, is um, the, the backdrop is a huge issue, and I don't even fully understand that, but it has to do with the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Um, and then also the issue of how much regulate how much the EU can regulate like economic issues within the, the UK after Brexit and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but anyway, what happened was so Johnson asked the Queen to prog Parliament in like in, in October, right before the Brexit date. And the the in the aftermath of that, the so Johnson only had a one vote majority in the House of Commons and <clears throat> one of the conservative members defected after this happened mm-hmm. to the liberals, the liberal Democrats who despite their name the way the name sounds to an American the liberal Democrats are actually the not the progressive party in the UK, they're kind of the centrist party um, Right. he defected to the liberal Democrats Labour's the liberal party Labour's, Labour's the liberal party um, and even the term liberal and conservative is fraught when you're talking about it. Other countries in Other general. countries, yeah. Um, so their one-vote majority defected. I forget the MP's name, but he defected. And so uh, Johnson has lost his majority in the House of Commons. He's like kind of at a dead 50-50, I guess. And so as a response to that, he threatened to call a snap election to yeah. bolster obviously because the only time a prime minister would threaten to call a snap election versus resign is because they believe that if they had an election within a short time span they would bolster their majority in the house of commons yeah. so as the last i've heard that's the la- i mean i'm sure there's been development since then the last i heard boris johnson responded to the defection of this conservative member to the liberal democrats by saying I, I might call snap elections to he didn't say to bolster his majority but like here's the the issue in the Westminster system is any time a prime minister believes he's lost the confidence of the house he has two options he either resigns or he calls an election Boris Johnson just became prime minister he's not going to resign so he's going to he the idea is he's going to call an election but he would only do that if he had a, a fair amount, at least a fair amount of confidence if he could bolster his majority. So if he does that and he gets a, a bigger majority for the conservatives in the House of Commons, then he might be able to go ahead with a no-deal Brexit on October 31st, which okay. honestly a lot of pro-Brexiters in the Conservative Party really want. They want to just leave and... and Jacob Rees-Mogg, I believe, is a proponent of a no-deal Brexit in the case of like the EU being intractable about certain issues and and Reese Mogg doesn't think it's going to be a huge issue if they leave under no deal like a lot of people are saying it's going to be an economic disaster etc cetera, etc cetera. Reese Mogg thinks it's not going to be a huge problem because the the UK will deal under world trade organization rules and it'll be fine hmm. and that's that's as far as I know that's what the status is right now 
I know something big happened just in the last couple of days that had to do with a vote in the House. Oh, I... Because, I, I, like... Uh, I'm in school, so I don't... David, I'll, uh, I'll try to... I'll, look, I'll try I, to look up the stuff in the Times and see what's going I on. I, I just forwarded it to you because I, I don't know why I subscribed to Lanehart's... Um, to who? David Lanehart, the main... Uh, the, the actual editor of the opinion page of the New York Times. Mm. He's the guy that does that the argument with Ross Douthat and Michelle Goldberg. Michelle Goldberg's so worthless. I don't even know what you're talking about. It's a it's a podcast. It's it's probably one of the best podcasts. It's called The Argument? Yeah, and it's just the three of them discussing stuff and that actually sounds kind of interesting. David and Ross always make these really meaningful contributions and then Michelle comes in with her total TDS about everything. Oh, and she's just terrified about everything. I mean, she, like basically Rachel Rachel Maddow. Kinda. I think that's basically where she gets all her ideas. And on one episode, it, that's why I can't listen to it consistently because she is just so annoying. And if I was a leftist and I was listening to that thing, I'd be like, this woman is so dumb. She doesn't make any meaningful contribution to this discussion at all. In any case. Um, they in one episode she actually she actually was arguing against the electoral college because as a democrat leftist who's supposed to be championing minority rights she believes we're being ruled by a minority within the country against our will what and it's just like oh my god like how can you people be this dumb like i, I don't understand it's not about minorities. It's about winning elections. That's the only thing you guys care about. Yeah. That's... Anyway. Um, okay. So, so, I know something happened. But... I don't know. I, I'm... Part of me wants a hard Brexit just because... I want them to. Ju- I want them to do it. Yeah, I yeah. I don't I, think there's I totally agree. Any... I totally agree that I don't have an opinion. For, honestly, for almost like moral reasons, like not even just like political reasons, but like like this idea that you have to a sovereign nation has to like go through the gauntlet. Yeah, really. just leave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I agree with why you. Why are you in it? I agree with you. And the only the only thing I can see, everyone always talks about economics. To me, this is a huge part of the leftization, whatever you want to call it, of Western political dynamics. Because it's like the only the only arguments that have been made against it are racism. That is re- I think that is super hard to make stick. Um, because you have a sovereign nation that has you know freedom of movement from all these other countries and there's this immigration crisis sure i can see some xenophobia going on xenophobia and racism are not the exact same thing no they're not and and on top of that the free movement of peoples is and xenophobia is normal i'm sorry yeah we're tribal like yeah malcolm gadwell so but anyway um is it gadwell is it gladwell yeah whatever um gladwell um the, the point I was going to make was I don't think it's a simple racism issue because of the Commonwealth of Nations. There is, apart from the EU, 
Yeah, there's, so, there's tons of non-English people in England. Exactly, and they're not there based on EU rules. They they're based there been. on Commonwealth rules, yes. right? So if you're a if if you are from a nation that's a member of the Commonwealth, and I, there's different tiers of the Commonwealth and things like that. But that being said, for example, it's much easier for a Pakistani person to move to the UK, apart from EU considerations, to move to the UK than it is from somebody from China, yeah. for example. So, and, and, and I don't think the English are that worried about Pakistanis. Exactly. I don't They're think they... worried about, about immigrant Muslims who are essentially like, I hate using the word invade because it sounds like they're doing it on purpose. They're not really doing it on purpose. But this, this well, they kind of they kind of are. Some of them are, but there is this crisis in Europe of all these refugees. However, they're becoming refugees, and if you're part of the EU, you can't tell them they can't come in. Yeah, which means that you don't have sovereignty as a yeah. nation. Yeah, by definition, you literally don't have sovereign borders. And the only thing I've heard from the American left, especially, is that the English people were lied to about the economics of the whole thing. And I think we talked about this on our previous podcast. Neil Ferguson agrees with that. And that's one of the main reasons why he was anti-Brexit is because they were lying economically. I don't know if that's true, though, because the, the, I, one of the, I'm pretty sure it actually well, is. Well, here's the thing, though. Well, not, not because of how bad it's going to be, but because of some of the economic things that they actually said that, weren't, that just weren't true. Not the outcomes. Are you mean talking the what, pro-Brexit group? Yes. Yeah, See, what I'm talking what, what, what I'm talking say. about is the anti-Brexit group said that as soon as like basically they were making claims that as soon as like a, a pro-Brexit vote passes, like the economy of the UK is going to tank. Oh yeah, that's total and it nonsense. didn't happen. No, that's total nonsense. Yeah, that's idiotic. No, but the pro-Brexit side said things about. Um, I don't know the details of it, but Neil Ferguson agreed, and he's never taken this back, even though he's actually pro-Brexit now. But he said his mind was changed because of pub talk. So there were just facts that they said things about the, the economic situation, what they'd be able to do in terms of you know negotiating deals with Europe that they just they wouldn't be able to do in a hard Brexit, and they were sort of like Obamacare, like. Obama said you'd be able to choose your doctor. Well, that's not true. Like, yeah. you can't. It's not just choose your doctor. Is if you like your doctor, you can keep your right, doctor. Exactly. And he knew that that was a lie when he said it. But he said it because he believes that this is this moral progressive good and the lie was worth telling. Well, according to Neil Ferguson, anyway, that is sort of what a lot of the, pre, the pro-Brexiters did for the economic situation not the outcomes but certain legal things things that they'd be able to do in Europe now and he said it doesn't matter to most of them and it's similar to Trumpism in this country because they reclaimed their sovereignty even if Brexit doesn't happen in some sense they've reclaimed their sovereignty yeah because they've proven that they actually do care about their ability to control their borders. Yeah. And when everything is an economic analysis and that's the only thing that matters, that's just not what matters to most yeah. of us. Yeah. Economics is far down the river for yeah. most of us. If you're, if, unless you're not embedded in a community. If you're an individual 
who only cares about making money because that's all you, you just you have to make money to make rent and buy groceries if you live in a community you can sustain hardship yeah and that's the saddest thing about a lot of the really pro trump areas of america is that they become totally unembedded in community yeah and they're they're hopeless they think some radical thing had to change yeah i've i've actually experienced that firsthand when i when i traveled to oklahoma to a couple of years ago my wife and i were driving cross country and i'd never been to oklahoma before and we were driving to tennessee but we stopped at my grandfather's hometown in oklahoma and uh it's like it's i mean it's kind of like the type of it's worse than the type of town you read about in hillbilly elegy wow like it's the population's now like 138 people and the only thing in town was like a post office like a, a little church and like mm. this convenience store that wasn't really a convenience store all it sold was like beer and cigarettes essentially oh, wow. um and I, what's funny is i actually ran into my second cousin who i've ne- never met before he ran the store Oh wow! I, I, did I ever tell you this story? I don't think so. I ran. I ran into my second cousin. He ran this little store in town. Um. I because I, I went in and I I asked him where, I essentially asked him where my great grandma my great grandfather's farm was, um, because my uncle had been three years before and told me, hey, like you know, go into this little store in the town and ask where your great grandfather's farm was, and they'll you know they might be able to tell you. And I went in, and the the guy who was running the store, when I asked him where my my great grandfather's farm was, he kind of looked at me quiz- quizzically, and he said, "He goes, well, why do you want to know?" And I said, "Well, that's my great grandfather." And he goes, "Well, that he said that's my great grandfather too." And then he told me who oh. Sonny was, and I said, "Well, that I said we're second cousins then," and um. But in the course of the conversation, we were talking, we spent a couple hours with him. And in the course of the conversation, one of the things he said in that area—it's a v- beautiful area of eastern Oklahoma—and um, it back in my grandfather's day, there was a lot of farming activity that went on there. But there's almost no farms there now. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he said was, "Is that um, fracking had actually polluted a lot of the groundwater? Mm-hmm. So the only the only thing that the the, that the land was good for now is grazing." And hmm. the what a lot of the land was used for was Texas cattle farmers would literally truck in their cattle and graze the land and then truck them back to Texas. Hmm. So none of that money was actually going into the local economy, really, because they, they bought up the land, they grazed their cattle on it, and they went back to Texas. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Mm. That's to me that that kind of opened my eyes to the, the 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 place where capitalism and conservatism diverge from each other. Yeah. Well, and yeah, that's I think there's a big difference between capitalism and free markets, and I yeah that might yeah because I think capitalism really kind of is a capitalism is an ideology. 
It definitely can be. It, we, well, when people use the word capitalism, I think a lot of times in modern political discourse, they're being ideological. I think that's probably true. Yeah, I mean, I don't. When most people on the right do, I think they mean something like free markets, or at the very least, they mean something like anti-socialism. Okay, and I don't that think I don't think that's capitalism really. I think what capitalism really is is Gordon Gecko, you know, this sort of uh, Who's Gordon Gecko. You've never seen Wall Street? No, I've never, never had You never heard the greed is good monologue? Oh no, I've heard, I've heard. I've, I don't think I've ever watched the movie all the way through, but I, it's, uh, Michael Douglas, right? Yeah, yeah, I've seen that monologue. Yeah, so I, greed, <laughs> for lack of a better term, is good. Greed works. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and I agree. I mean, I agree with Hayek and a lot of the libertarian philosophers that you know the profit motive is actually one of the best. It's one. Of, it's one of the the best motives for creating uh, human cooperation. Between between Alan and myself, we we own five cats, and one of them is um, that makes us sound <laughs> like a gay couple. Um, you know, for all our listeners, no, we could be a gay couple that's just pretending we're not a gay couple. That's true. Secretly, maybe I'm Chad Felix Green of the Federalist, <laughs> um, and uh, eh, anyway, one of those cats was just hissing at my friend because she's a little knucklehead um but yeah this this ideology that this is one thing that does creep me out even about the conservative um catholics or the conservative libertarians is this idea that you know capitalism will save us and it, it has made you know it's really sort of stephen pinker's view and Jonah Goldberg kind of co-opted it a little bit too. You know, it, it, this miracle of free markets and capitalism has has improved material well-being so much, and at the same time, it really has destroyed a lot of social fabric because it's it's capitalism. It's destabilizing. It's yeah. creative destruction. All of these words. Yeah. Um, get used all the time and I don't think the solution is socialism but there's a big gap between a capitalist ideology even almost like a capitalist religion yeah and socialism there's a lot of in between there yeah I think I think that I think the phrase that would come to mind is and I'm sure somebody else has said this before but capitalism is a great servant but a terrible master yeah absolutely yeah, I don't know who said that, but yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly the problem. It well, and it's just it's amazing because Schumpeter. I mean, Schumpeter is one of the great, um, you know, free market economists of the twentieth century. He's the one that creates the the phrase "creative destruction." Oh, okay. And he's very clear. The consequences are not super great like within capitalism capitalism does sow the seeds of its own destruction but not along marxist lines at all oh interesting because it doesn't do what marx marx thinks it's going to destroy itself in an evolutionary process yeah and 
I think I I know it's I a said necessary this. process. Yeah, it's a necessary part of the Marxist analysis, and yeah. I know I've said this on this podcast. It's deterministic, before. actually. Yeah, it's foolish. Like yeah. Marx was wrong about everything. Like he not even, everything. What was he right about? Alienation of labor. I think I think Marx was spot on about that. What do you mean? I think that he I think he was right in saying that that the nature of industrial capitalism creates a working class that it fundamentally feels alienated from the products of their own labor. I think that's just true. Yeah. I have it's a, hard to avoid that. I have a feeling, though, that there were people that had actually made that observation before Marx. Maybe. Like, the South. I think the South actually made that observation. Who, though? Before Marx. I don't know who specifically. Anyway, but sorry, can we take a break? I really have to take a piss. Yeah. Okay. I'm just gonna... Actually, my phone is... Though much is taken, much abides. And though we are not now that strength which in old days moved heaven and earth, that which we are, we are. And what we are is conservative. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the New Worlders podcast. Lord Salisbury infamously said to delay his life. Join us again next time as we fight the long defeat in our little platoon. God bless.